you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. For the final week of Spooktober, we are closing out the same way we started up, by discussing The Summer Hikaru Died by Moku Mokurin. This week, we are going to be discussing Volume 2. We are recording this on October 17th, which is the official release date for the book. Some Barnes and Nobles and such put copies out early, but this is pretty much our record turnaround time on a new comic because we're discussing it on release day and we both finished reading it within the last hour. So immediate fresh reactions and responses as always, spoiler warning, yada, 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 yada. That's what this show does. But yeah, I'm not going to bother trying to do an intro or a catch up on volume one. If you're listening to a podcast about volume two, I'm going to assume you know what's up. Just go back and listen to our episode on volume one. Exactly. And with that all aside... I guess I'll turn it to you and simply say, what did you think? Or where would you like to start? Uh, it's st- It stays good. It's still good. If you listen to our episode at the beginning of the month, it was just us gushing over the book. And I think all the things we liked about it are still here. This is sort of a... This volume feels a little transitioning to me. Like it's transitioning into the storylines that are going to fill up presumably the rest of the manga. Like, there's a lot of things that just sort of start here. So I think maybe the narrative isn't quite as compelling as it was in the first volume, because it's now just trying to expand the cast of the world and just sort of hint at things that are going to get paid off later, rather than having anything that pays off in the book. But, like, none of that's bad. That's stuff you have to do if you're doing some long-form storytelling like this. And this is still excellent. That's pretty much how I feel, yeah. When I read volume one, I was immediately obsessed and I didn't really have the same super strong reaction to reading this as I did volume one, but I think it's largely due to the sort of thing you said of, you know, like this being more transitional, more of a middle volume as opposed to you know, like the beginning sort of has the advantage of foot on the gas, first impression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this is not only following up on volume one, but also clearly trying to lay some more groundwork for things going forward. And I haven't really fully like sorted out my thoughts on all of it you know a lot of it is just sort of me being like 
what's to come from that, you know, and I'll talk more specifically about a few certain things that triggered that sort of reaction when we get to them. But before we even really dive into the story, I want to talk about the covers for a minute. I don't remember for sure, but I don't think we really talked about the cover design when we did volume one, did we? No, no, I don't think so. So volume one and two are very similar cover design and that each one is one of the principal characters against this very bright and like unnatural looking shade of teal, you know, just really bright blue green that catches the eye on the shelf and the characters stand out starkly against it. It, I don't know, is it just me or is like something about this specific shade like just fits the story and that it like just looks unnatural to me? Like in that I literally do not see the shade of blue in nature. Blue is like really rare in nature to begin with. But yeah, like because it's it's off enough from being like a sky blue the tealiness of it does, like, it is a weird color for your background. Um, I will say it stands out very well on a manga shelf because I was not looking for it when I saw it in Barnes & Noble on Saturday. But I noticed it. <laughs> I, I, I literally was just glancing over the manga section, wasn't even looking at it because I don't typically read manga because... I'm an obsessive collector and I don't need another thing to obsessively collect. But um, I was just like, hang on, that's not out till Tuesday and went right over to it. Fairly often I'll find manga volumes a week early at Barnes and Noble. And some of y'all are lucky enough that you'll have found this before the release date. But yeah, it is very eye-catching on the shelf, like the color itself, and then on the back covers, we'll also have an illustration of whichever protagonist isn't on the front. So in the case of Volume 2, on the front cover, we have Yoshiki just like sort of looking slightly over his shoulder at the viewer and then on the back cover, we have Hikaru, or, you know, quote-unquote Hikaru, specifically a younger flashback Hikaru holding up a crab from a scene in this volume. And it all sounds very simple, you know? It is quite simple. It is literally just a cover spread composed of static images of the characters against literally just plain monochromatic background but it works you know just the unnaturalness of the shade and everything beyond just popping on the shelf just feels so appropriate to all the eerie goings on inside yeah i i think that part of what makes the teal work so well is the warm light that's used on the characters themselves like the characters have in, in on both covers have a much warmer uh tone 
like especially on um, volume two, Yoshiki is practically orange with whatever like it's like a the light of a sunset hitting him, but he's in this entirely blue environment, and some of him is reflecting that. Then that contrast, I think, really works. Yeah, moving into the book proper, I'll go ahead and just do a quick uh filling out of creator acknowledgments. In the thank you message at the back, Moku Mokarin also credits their assistants, Maria Yomi, Serena Hirakawa, and Nomu. And then for the English credits, this is published by Yin Press with Ajani Oloye on translation and Abigail Blackman on the lettering. And yeah, obligatory credits. There we go. And plot-wise, this volume just picks up right where volume one left off in the middle of a classroom after class hours where volume one concluded with Yoshiki and Hikaru having, I don't know if fight is too strong of a word for it, but certainly a heated emotional altercation wherein Hikaru started, like, expelling the black mass, the sort of fractal patterns, the algae, alien, sort of everything, over Yoshiki. And the opening color page to volume two is essentially just an immediate callback to that as we watch the mass sort of overtaking Yoshiki's arm and... The opening captioning is the same as at the end of volume one, quoting the nice woman who Yoshiki met, who basically was just like warning him to stay away from all the supernatural shit. Uh, specifically, it says, you must know it too, that you can't keep being with your friend like this. And we get just like a color spread here unrelated to the plot as like chapter spreads often are in manga volumes with this shot of Yoshiki and Hikaru eating popsicles together at just like the entrance presumably to one of their houses they're on the mats with the door open there's like some decoration hanging above them and like I said it's not plot relevant but immediately I just still love the art here, specifically the expressions, and that we get Yoshiki looking off, simply looking dead inside, you know, just these extremely tired, stressed eyes. And meanwhile, Hikaru has, like, positioned his head in Yoshiki's lap, and the way that he's eating the popsicle seems feral, you know, because the, like, new Hikaru, we get just so much of, like, here's this creature doing things for the first time. And yeah. the way that he's downing this is, like, animalistic. I don't know if you agree or not. I agree. I, to the point where he has, like, tiny little fangs and red eyes. <laughs> like, his teeth are drawn pretty sharp there. And then he's got, like, the photo reflection red eyes. As though this is a picture someone's taken. 
which is a great touch because those always look insanely creepy. Oh yeah. Yeah, that is a good note about the eyes. And yeah, like the canine teeth are very pronounced here. But after flipping the page, the story flashes back briefly to one week before the argument in the classroom. And we essentially get a focus on Hikaru's perspective as opposed to Yoshiki's. We get to cut to his point of view a bit more than we got to in volume one. And I think the main takeaway is just that the new Hikaru is also just incredibly stressed out and overstimulated and just you know, sweltering in the drama of his life and the literal summer sun and the return of the columns and columns of vertical text representing the calls of cicadas around them. And it's sort of like this nice transition from his like sweltering face dissolving into the sound effects into this nightmare where Hikaru is dreaming that Yoshiki says truth is I don't need you anymore I don't need a like you and then the word between a and like is like scratched out scribbled out and it's not like there's an actual ward that you can even like, you know, sort of see underneath, just like indecipherable, just the scene of Hikaru having a nightmare about being rejected and then like waking up sweaty in his bed at night before then like looking at himself in the mirror and yeah. Anna, what do you think of the sequence? I think it's really cool that even Hikaru doesn't know what the fuck he is. Like, he talked about that in the first volume, but this kind of confirms it, which just makes him so much more interesting as a character. Like, even if he is, like, essentially an evil demon who has taken over the body of, like, a dead child and is now, like, replicating his actions, he doesn't, at the very least, know that he's evil. <laughs> Yeah, like, he's not a super villain with super clear intent and cackling or anything like that. And I think it's stronger for that. But uh, I I'm, I'm really like that we are getting a bit more into his perspective. There's a lot of, throughout these chunks of the book that are, like, from his perspective, there's a lot of, like, this usage of these little, like, thin panels with sort of sketchy black lines filling them to transition between scenes that I really like. Yeah. Like it feels like a way of showing someone who's maybe even like losing time. Like is Hikaru even aware of everything that he does? It's a question I now have because it's it's a panel that looks to me like someone losing consciousness. But I'm just like, but it's just between scenes. It'll happen sometimes when we're looking at things from Hikaru's perspective. Yeah, those sorts of like 
thin rectangular panels are pretty commonly used in manga and like scene transitions but in the context here yeah i think there's something interesting in how they replicate just the general sense of like unease and uncertainty you know and a large part of all of the hikaru focused scenes here and of like his character development throughout volume two really just have a lot to do with how singularly focused his existence is on Yoshiki at this point, you know? And, like, even when we see Hikaru on his own, he's largely thinking either about Yoshiki or if he's thinking about himself, it's because of his thoughts on how Yoshiki perceives him. And, yeah, like, we know that he's still living as Hikaru, you know, goes home. We have glimpses of his mom. And there is just sort of like this question or maybe even the sense of like, does he only feel fully alive and alert when Yoshiki's around, you know, or like to what degree does he really give a shit about anything else? I don't think he cares at all about anything else. Yeah. It's like, Which... I think the only time anything else gets his attention is if it's, say, like, his mom giving him a type of food he's never had, and he'll have, like, a sensory experience about the food, but, like, I don't think he emotionally cares about anyone else. Essentially, this sequence, then, by way of the thin transitional panels, shifts us back to the present day, and... Hikaru freaking out and losing control and the black goop inside of him that makes him up spilling out and like engulfing the floor and Hikaru and there's so much here of note. Firstly, I just need to shout out one of the earliest panels where we're seeing it from, like, a bird's eye view directly above of the characters, as opposed to oh, from either... this panel. Yeah, as opposed to from either of their perspectives. It's, like, a straight-down shot. And they're surrounded by the desks of the classroom. They're, like, in the middle of this grid of desks where... Just one to the side of them has been made, like, slightly askew, and the chair fallen over, and otherwise, is this them in the middle of this perfect grid where there's both a sexual and a violent energy to it? Because, like, the positioning of the bodies is akin to something you could expect in an image of, say two characters kissing each other or potentially something further than that, sexually speaking. But we're also seeing just the writhing mass of just all the black ink, you know, stemming from Hikaru's face and body. Yeah, it looks like a blood splatter. Like, it, it, this, it's, it's so good. The, 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 I love the one desk being off. That little bit of disorder in this orderly room, but the, the chaos that they've caused, the way that, yeah, it, it looks, 
you're like either they're fucking or one of them's dead and their heads exploded. Yeah. It's just this really interesting juxtaposition between like the chaos of what's happening and yet also such an orderly composition that just makes the chaos all the more interesting to look at. It's fierce. It's really, really good. The floor grid pattern, like the tile or wood, whatever that is, that's, yeah. <laughs> it's the best panel of the whole volume, which is saying something. There's a lot of very nice looking panels, but this panel just has so much going on in this one panel. I probably agree. This also begs the question, do we need to add a best panel of the year category to the award shows? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. But anywho, we then shift a bit into most of the rest of the scene being from Yoshiki's perspective as the goop is like pouring over him and in some ways pouring into him. And there's just a lot, you know, there is the layers of the literal and the obvious sort of implications and metaphor, et cetera, et cetera. But we get sort of the panicked transitions in Yoshiki's inner monologue as he just keeps thinking, it feels so gross, it feels so gross, it feels so gross, it feels so gross, it feels so, it feels so good. It feels good, 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 and then it just transitions into nothing but question marks, just rows and rows of question marks, as we also get the speech bubbles that are not words, but just like sounds of him like panting or choking, because partially some of the goop is like going through his mouth, and on the next splash page it's basically just writhing black mass pouring into him as he thinks ah what is this something is flowing inside me and while it's doing that in the midst of all of the spiral patterns and everything he sees images through the goop of just like a rural scene, presumably from this countryside town they live in. And then another shot of a shocked looking woman holding what appears to be a human head before he comes back to when Hikaru has like regained control and he's no longer been covered in this mass. But... There's so much just in those five pages. So two things for me on this. One is the cheap joke, which is Yoshiki was not expecting Hikaru to use his tongue when they kissed. And two, we may need to also add an award for best lettering. Yeah, did we not do that last year? We, we definitely didn't. need to talk about it, yeah. Which, like, A, generally we should, and B contender right here it's so good and like just to be clear describing like the presentation like in this scene yoshiki's thoughts aren't like in boxes or in the sort of 
really specifically shaped balloons, you know, the way that fought balloons will usually sort of have like these arches and just sort of like this altered shape compared to a speech balloon. As opposed to anything like that, his thoughts are just juxtaposed against the arts with nothing else between the two. And it's just this like all caps sort of typewritery font in all white against the black of all the ink. It's so weird seeing a serif font in a book, in a comic. There's a lot of serif font usage in the lettering in this, and I'm always just like, wow, you just like never see that. Yeah, and it makes it all the more impactful of how much it stands out. Because it's like... used for all of the like column sound effects as well. Which, I mean, they're columns because they're just replicating the original shape of those sound effects, presumably. Because it's so integral to the way the art is shaped for those. You have to replicate that shape. But the consistency of that choice is so good. Yeah, it's really good. And, you know, it doesn't even need pointing out, but just everything of the language from... It feels so gross to it feels so good to confusion to them being positioned as if they're making out to just all the general gaiety of it, you know, just we'll get back to that. But uh, I, I made the cheap joke. Yeah. Yeah. When Yoshiki sort of comes back to Hikaru is crying, is talking to himself and saying, I can't do it, anyone but him, and says to Yoshiki, don't hate me, before leaving the room. And, yeah, I guess do you have anything else on this sequence before we sort of move forward? No, I I, I mean, clearly the stuff with the head is, like, setting up for more stuff that's even not really... I think what this is is brought up again later, but we don't have enough information to have much to say other than, hey, he sees some fucked up shit while he's got Hikaru inside him. Yeah. So, like, yeah, there's 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 stuff going on here that we don't know, which we knew, but now we know a little bit more about how serious it is and how long it's been, because that's clearly, like, a much... Like, a lot of the building design, some of the building design we've seen in the series before has been, like, older. But that looks like the first people who lived in the area. It's how old those buildings look. Yeah. It's giving the impression that the mass is giving some sort of, like, memories from the creature that Hikaru was, or otherwise just visions of the past, yeah. Yeah, it's like hundreds of years ago, whatever this is. Um, nice it vibes in terms of just the the this has been here this whole time aspect of it. I like that in in a horror thing. I always like a a small town with secrets. Yeah, and Yoshiki is understandably emotionally fucked up from all this. Hikaru skips school the next day, you know, the whole, I'm scared and don't want to face it, I'm going to say I'm sick. And Yoshiki noticed he has, like, this bruise that still hasn't gone away on his arm from where Hikaru was holding him down. 
And at the end of the day, Yoshiki stops by Hikaru's house to see him. And Hikaru is so scared and upset of himself and just generally emotionally wrought. He's like bundled himself up in his blankets. He's trying not to let Yoshiki look at him directly. And it's this exchange of both of them apologizing to each other. And Hikaru asking if Yoshiki hates him. And just crying about how he just doesn't want him to hate him. And he just wants to spend time with Yoshiki, etc., etc. And as Yoshiki's like holding him while he's crying... He's just thinking how he is dangerous, but he feels bad for him. And Yoshiki makes a comment about Hikaru being like a little kid, which sort of brings up the thought again of just like, oh, in some way this creature seems ancient and primordial, and yet in this body it feels childlike and inexperienced with living as the sort of creature, whether it be like as a human or approximation of a human. And it basically largely just feels like an affirmation of their friendship, I suppose. You know, like Yoshiki sort of resolving to teach the new Hikaru things instead of just rejecting him outright. And... Yeah, it's just a sort of emotional come down and making up for all the chaos the day before. I really love how much the gap in the blanket that Hikaru talks out of at the start of the scene looks like the slit in him from the, uh, you know, touch the inside of me scene from last volume. That, like, visual callback is just so great, especially when we have the shot of, like, Hikaru's hand coming out and Hikaru's eye looking out from this slit that just looks exactly, you know, it's the same thing where it's just, like, the vertical line split down it. Yeah. It's very cleverly done. It's really effective, just, like, use of shape. And chapter eight then begins with the return of a third iconic character in this series, Mince Aniki, the cat, who I adore the way the cat is drawn continually. It's just a scene of, like, the two of them hanging out with the cat and more of just, like, Hikaru wishing the cat would like him better, but, again, the implication being the cat can sense that something's not right, etc., etc., but the cat continues to be drawn like a gag, like comedy series animal in a way that feels like less tethered in reality than a lot of the rest of the comic. And I just think it's fun. Excellent cat drawing. We then transition to the scene at a summer festival where Hikaru and Yoshiki go to the festival they also bring Yoshiki's little sister, Kaoru. I can, yeah, I can see it, but I, I'm not sure on the pronunciation. Kaoru? With it, like, transcribed into English, I can't see, like, the original 
Hiragana or Katakana or whichever script it used. So I'm not entirely sure what the pronunciation is, but we'll make do. Um, but yeah, it's the two with the little sister. Again, just sort of going around Hikaru trying to, you know, just have fun with them, trying to just like be a normal boy. And at the festival, there is a type of gate called a Tori gate, which is often found in the front of like Shinto and Buddhist temples. And Yoshiki and his sister are able to walk through with no problem, but Hikaru is sort of repelled by it. And we get this panel of like his hand writhing into a black mass again and him telling them that he'll just have to meet back up with them elsewhere in yet another sort of moment of just going, oh, this being is not natural because Tory gates generally just like signify an entrance into a more sort of sacred space. So, at least in the way that's, like, being employed here, I don't know if it's too extreme to say that it's, like, an, oh, Hikaru is, like, demonic sort of moment, but it's definitely, like, a, just another indication of, oh, even though he's trying, you know, and this is an innocent night of him doing his best and trying to do right by him he is being rejected by the sacred space, I suppose. Yeah, the um the the implication that what he is inherently is something threatening to reality, regardless of his what he wants to do, what he is doing. Yeah. Now, shortly after this, we get another transition. It's still the night of the festival, but Karu, Kaoru, the little sister, has left the two boys alone momentarily. And they're eating shaved ice together. Yoshiki informs Hikaru that basically all shaved ice tastes the same. And the change is basically just like in food coloring in terms of what the flavor difference is. And... Hikaru just, like, considers this before asking, then what about me? If something looks the same as another, can it feel the same too? And Yoshiki says no way, but it's not just, like, a straightforward sad moment because it's also, like, underpinned by the fact that even though, you know, He's supposedly like a perfect replica physically. The new Hikaru is still such a different, I'll say person, you know, personhood complicated in this case. Person question mark? (laughs) Yeah. Entity of some kind. Sentient being? Yeah. I think we can at least say sentient being. And... Yoshiki specifically remembers, and we get this panel from earlier when they're talking, of just, like, this vulnerable shot of the new Hikaru crying because of how upset he was. 
and Yoshiki in his mind just thinks how the real Hikaru didn't make faces like that. And this then turns to Hikaru asking Yoshiki basically just like about how he could tell that he was not the real thing. And it's at this point that chapter eight ends on the gigantic plot reveal that prior to at least my impression before, I don't think the manga ever said it explicitly, but definitely the implication, the sort of taken as granted. We find out that Yoshiki apparently saw the real Hikaru's dead body. And that's the cliffhanger. Many thoughts on any of this. I mean, that's a big reveal. I was just like, oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> uh, that makes more sense as to why you would get to the point where you're like, wow, are you just like not my friend at all because the one like yeah as he says that later it, it isn't quite enough that he's just acting a bit different after what clearly would have been a traumatic experience presumably to be a clear indicator that this is something that isn't your friend so i don't know whether this is just trying to make that make a bit more sense in terms of just like it it, it made enough sense that it didn't bother me at all but, um, yeah. Yeah, that was a big, big moment. Yeah. And from there, we essentially get this long extended flashback to the time of the real Hikaru's disappearance and Yoshiki, like, running out on his own in the middle of a dark thunderstorm looking for Hikaru in the forest these pages are very dark and not just in the way that a standard manga convention for flashbacks is to have just like the background behind the panels be black or a darker tone. Like here we have just like the dark lighting of it being a nighttime scene, you know, sort of only illuminated by lightning flashes and a flashlight but in the background of the pages behind the panels, we also just get more and more sound effects of just like the sounds of like rain falling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just like visually conveying the sense of a storm. And it's a lot of Yoshiki running around until he finds Hikaru's lifeless body and basically it's a lot of Yoshiki's thoughts and him saying his body's in surprisingly good condition all of these various things and the scene then sort of warps a bit further in time visually the warp sort of just again calls back to the spirals and everything of the interior of Hikaru. And we then cut to Yoshiki having made his way home, his mom fussing over him being safe, and him having a fever and passing out for a few days. And when he finally wakes up, having not told anyone that he found the body, 
he finds out that quote unquote Hikaru is back. And yeah, it's intense. It's an intense scene, which then just transitions back to the current day of the two boys talking at the festival and more just somewhat cryptic talk from the new Hikaru specifically saying, I was probably already like this when you found him, but I reckon it took a few days for me to repair his body, so you must have come in the middle of all that. And again, just the question of what the hell's going on. And yeah, I did not see any of this coming. I don't know about you. The implication from the end of the flashback that like the new Hikaru did something to Yoshiki because the way the sequence ends, we actually see the mass in front of Yoshiki and then it is just the sudden page turn and he's at home in his mother's arms like sick with a fever. That's incredibly sinister and I'm just like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, I think you did something so that you could come back. So I, I'm sure, again, we'll see, because clearly this is a series that's playing its cards close to its chest, so there's going to be a lot of things where, like, we'll understand more later. But it does feel very, very sinister to me. Yeah. This volume, especially this middle segment, continues just that really successful balance of like the sincere and the poignant and the sinister and the eerie and as the two are talking in the present day we get Yoshiki just thinking about how he misses the real Hikaru and mourning and we get a flashback to when they were younger kids uh, him and the real Hikaru which is notable on multiple levels. Part of it involves Yoshiki talking about feeling cramped and not at home in the country, you know, wanting to move, not being happy. And we then get Hikaru just smiling and being like, whenever you feel that way, come spend time with me because you always have fun with me. And then it ends with like the crabs from the stream where they're sitting at, hence the image on the back cover of child Hikaru holding up some crabs. And beyond that, though, in the middle of this conversation, part of what Yoshiki hates about the town is how much everyone gossips and is in everyone's business and in his family's business. And at one point, they briefly mention drama happening with another family in town and just family drama over the air and this one family being Yoshiki uses the term specifically homosexual and this just slides back into the conversation about how small and cramped the town is and how Yoshiki doesn't feel at home which then just goes back to the present day of Yoshiki sort of actively literally mourning the real Hikaru 
in a way that we haven't gotten to see a whole lot of before this. And when new Hikaru tries to give him his space, Yoshiki like grabs him by the shirt to keep him there. And new Hikaru just does another bit of being like, I may not be able to replace him, but I'll always protect you and I'll do whatever you ask me to. And we get just like these sinister close-ups on both of their pairs of eyes. You know, just that sense of eeriness and danger in the midst of the emotional vulnerability before we get this cryptic scene of these characters we have not seen before, these free older men who just keep saying things about rituals and things not being done. And is there really something up there in these mountains? And they're calling for this man named Tanaka to come help. And basically we just get this one page shot of Tanaka in front of his computer and his wall is very conspiracy theorist style visual of just like all of these shots and pictures of like maps and of the woods all taped up next to each other. Charlie Day is standing in front of this wall making a weird face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is another chapter end with the characters calling in this sort of investigator. And this was probably the biggest moment of surprise for me tonally in this volume. And that it kind of made me go, oh, is there going to be like an actual antagonist? You know, just like how is this character arc going to play out? We get nothing else of him in this volume, but it seems to be setting up for... I suppose more of a sort of direct conflict with an outside force than I think we've really got before now. Yeah, I think it, at some point you kind of have to do that, I think, if you're doing a story that's going to go on for a good length of time like this. And yeah, it, like it's from what I can tell reading all of this, basically they were expecting... Hikaru to complete some kind of ritual. Right? Because that's that's who they're talking about. When they say that uh I I'm gonna go for this name. Kohi's son went missing for over a week. He came back, but he probably didn't complete the ritual. That's Hikaru. Yeah, the real Hikaru. Yeah. So what if the like when he went missing, he had clearly been sent or you know whether he knew it or not he had been sent to do some kind of ritual presumably it's tied in to the vision we got of a person's head in that woman's arms like maybe he was sent as a sacrifice or something to keep this thing at bay but instead what's happened is now it's back and it is him yeah and that's my best guess yeah And, like, there is also, like, the plot point of, like, we know that Hikaru's dad had previously disappeared to just add more to that whole thing of this, like, familial lineage 
around these woods. But yeah, there's there's something going on that is tied with the history of the town and tied with the history of this creature before it was Hikaru. And we're about to get uh, the guy from Ghost Hunters to show up to help out. Yeah. Chapter 10 then flashes back to the time of the real Hikaru's disappearance and gives us something that we've never gotten before, which is interiority and thoughts and focus on the real Hikaru as he is lying down in the woods having like slipped and fallen and injured himself as he was going through the woods. Some of his thoughts allude again to just the things we've been talking about with not being able to carry out the family's duties. And as he's thinking that he hopes no one will be sad about this, he thinks, if I die, he'll be alone. Yoshiki, Yoshiki. I don't want to leave you alone. And at this point, his vision and like the representations of the woods around him are faltering. And, you know, he's not sure how much of it is just his own vision being affected by his injuries and the blood. But we begin to see the telltale spiraling and disruptions of reality around him. He name drops Unuki-sama and the last words we get from the real Hikaru as he lifts up his arm as this writhing mass seems to descend on him. He says, take my place and stay by his side. And so we have this completion of this sort of transference between him and whatever this entity is and yeah i think this scene's really good what about you i like that this is the first time we've gotten any sort of confirmation that like maybe original hikaru at least had some feelings about yoshiki that sort of matched yoshiki's clear feelings for him yeah um like that's nice that feels good after, you know, especially so much in the first volume, you sort of like, it's really, you can't tell. And it's pretty clear that Yoshiki couldn't tell from his interactions with Hikaru. And at the very least, like, maybe these are, this isn't, the, the last person he thought about was Yoshiki. And the last thought he had while he was alive at all was not wanting him to be alone without him. Which, like, sucks that he's dead, but that's very sweet. This is a good kid, but also, um, I'm sorry, he slipped and fell. Did he now? How about that sexy tree? Yeah, and also, uh, Hikaru, bisexual icon, apparently, distracted by a sexy tree that looks like it has tits. And yeah, like full on, like, just one of those decapitated statues just of a nude woman, but the head is just like the rest of a normal tree trunk. tree trunk. Yeah. And specifically the ward bubble. Whoa, that's a sexy tree. Then he next thought is just <laughs> him 
lying down, fucked up, injured, potentially from falling. But yeah, as you said, did he simply naturally fall or not? But yeah, sexy tree. The sexy tree killed him. We then cut to a Helmec class and Yoshiki staring down at the raw chicken that they're preparing. And Hikaru's also in this class. He picks up on how intently Yoshiki was staring at this chicken. And it's just like, why? To which Yoshiki just remarks that raw chicken... I'll just read. The way raw chicken feels, it's kind of like how it felt that one time with that weird stuff inside ya is all. And after Hikaru has a laugh about it for a minute, he then asks, want to try feeling it again? And yeah, again, just this exchange between them, Hikaru remarks on how he's noticed that Yoshiki is uncomfortable with guys getting in his personal space and talks about how he thinks that it would probably help Yoshiki to get used to it. To which Yoshiki agrees and we get a follow-up to the original scene of Hikaru unbuttoning his shirt and just unveiling his chest slit and... Again, the sexuality of it is obviously apparent and just a lot of time of getting used to it and how does it feel, etc. But then also mixed with some of the mass starting to crawl up Yoshiki's arm and just sort of the question of is this beast trying to somehow take him over again or do something else to him? And yeah, yeah, just this question of is something within Hikaru a threat to Yoshiki without even meaning to be? And after that, the end of the book basically involves, again, just like the question or However, just like the idea of, oh, now that Yoshiki has been sort of marked by his time with Hikaru, other supernatural beings seem to be attracted to the house, specifically this weird hair monster that the sister sees in the shower and gets scared by. The hair ghost. Yeah. And when the two boys go to investigate it, there's this sequence of like Hikaru going in first to try to get rid of the creature like he has the ones in the woods before. And when Yoshiki follows after him, he sees Hikaru submerged in the water and like bends down to like try and help. But the hair then like pulls him in and Yoshiki again feels like something is going inside of him. As we then get this multi-page mindscape sequence where he's not sure if he's dreaming or not. And just these incredible still images of like the Yoshiki 
standing in a barren field with no other people around him anywhere in sight before turning around and suddenly getting surrounded by these masses of what looks like brains like these columns yeah of just like meat that then talk to him but they're talking all in like quotes from people in the town of just like daily gossip and he's just like freaking out over all this weird shit before again flashing back to another childhood memory of the real Hikaru where they're arguing over a bird that they had been trying to keep alive but which ultimately died and them fighting about whose fault it was and just this image of the two of them like shoving and grabbing each other's hair then transitions to a two-page spread in the presence of the two of them fighting in the bathtub as it's unclear or rather the implication is probably that this other supernatural beast has got a hold of Yoshiki and it's like is he trying to drown Hikaru now? Yeah, the volume essentially just ends on... Another cliffhanger. Yeah. That was a lot of information I sped through, but yeah. Thoughts on any of that? Uh, I like the scene where Yoshiki has to teach Hikaru about consent. I thought that was a really good scene. Um, The sort of continuing attempts on Yoshiki's part to try and educate Hikaru and like his his attempt at trying to navigate all of his conflicting feelings and it's sort of coming to the point where he's just like okay I need to actually question like him questioning his motivations that was a really good interesting scene um I also like the hair ghost the the shot the panel of it um spread on like the glass shower doors uh with the sister sort of looking back at it. It's just like this clump of lines and hair. Like, it's like a a sentient hair clump. It's cool. It continues the pattern in this series of every monster that appears or every, like, supernatural thing A, not looking remotely like any of the other things. Like, the hair is at one point compared to the stuff that makes up Hikaru, but, like, the way it's drawn, it doesn't look like that at all. So I like that all the supernatural stuff looks really different every time something supernatural shows up. I love the dream sequence, or like not a dream sequence, visual callback to volume one, where here Yoshiki's just like alone in the middle of the fields and the composition of this two-page spread this image is like so similar to volume one pages of like him and Hikaru like walking through the fields together, you know, and like would have all of the sound effects of the cicada cries and such and like dragonflies flying, etc. Whereas here it's so stark in contrast because it's just him most of the page is just white expanse and the sudden shift to 
no sound effects is actually really pronounced and noticeable because of just like how prevalent the constant noises throughout the series are. It's a really effective switch. Yeah. I I also really like the weird brain things. I have no idea what the fuck is happening there at all. But um just visually that's really inventive. It is a very interesting visual. It is also very different from anything else here. It's a sudden like what the fuck, but yeah, it's very interesting. Like we say brain things, they could be intestines. I think it's brain. Like it looks like what you would text your brain, but the shape isn't brainy. It's not a brain shape. Yeah, it's like it's these like pillars of just like some sort of like folded molding, like fleshy something, whether it be brain matter or intestines or point being it looks somehow like interior body parts he's maybe hearing people's thoughts which might explain the brain things unclear like intentionally unclear i would say you know another thing about this is is every encounter with the supernatural so far has been very strange and hard to define just like how it's been hard to define exactly what the hikaru thing is and it's been hard to define whatever that thing was in the forest whatever's going with the hair ghost now is also hard to define and strange and i really like that yeah and like you said earlier like all the paranormal creatures are different and it's eerie that just like you know this isn't just, like, one paranormal race of creatures, you know? There's apparently all sorts of different spooky shit going on, and it's cool. It's all really cool. This comic is good. Like, when I first finished reading it, you know, I was like, oh, that was still good. Hadn't really processed my feelings because a lot of things I just did not expect etc had literally just finished but the more we talk about it the more I can be like yeah it continues to be really good yeah I, I think it's great I do think this volume isn't as good as the first volume because a it doesn't have to sell you on the premise anymore and it's not about just the initial premise of the concept it's building things out a bit so this can I mean, it's an ongoing, it's, this needs to sustain an ongoing, there needs to be more things going on, and this is us getting those things going, but they're not all going yet. Like, the stuff with the ritual, I'm like, yeah, that's gonna have some cool payoff in volume 3 or 4, though, you know? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this volume where I'm just like, yeah, it's probably gonna stick the landing when we get to this. Yeah. Before we wrap up, too, I'll also note the just like little bonus bit at the end that's not a full chapter, but just some added content involves a girl confessing to Hikaru, the present day, not real Hikaru, and him not really understanding and Yoshiki again trying to like teach him about this. And this then results in Hikaru like, explicitly asking himself, 
just what kind of like is my like and does he like Yoshiki the way that girl likes him and it's just again we get some more like linguistically just direct sort of addressing of the homosexuality of it all between just like the mentioning of the family drama involving a gay son earlier and then we get here Hikaru thinking to himself ward for ward I think I love Yoshiki I really do so all of this is amping up as well yeah I mean if you read past like that first scene of the first one and you weren't getting that vibe from these two then you just weren't paying attention but I, I like that the book is getting a bit more explicit with it it feels really well paced to me, yeah. Like in in a way that feels realistic for where these characters are at in their lives and like thinking about this. I mean, in that flashback we saw Hikaru mispronounces homosexual with a question mark, implying that he doesn't know what the word even means. So, like the new Hikaru lacks the societal aspect of like new hikaru doesn't have internalized homophobia because he simply hasn't been brought up in a society that cares about that at all because he doesn't have any real memories beyond like this brief time he spent with yoshiki so he's just confused about what love is he has like and no I really... mental reference for like human love or sexuality at all yeah, so like it's it's his question here now is no longer anything related to the gender of the person he's interested in because he that I don't think that's something that's even on his radar. It's just like, well, what what is feelings? Question mark. Yeah. Whereas Yoshiki, it's increasingly clear, is like on the edge of realization at all times but is perhaps clamping down on that at the moment. Yeah, it reads very much like Yoshiki knows, but doesn't want to know. Yeah. Do you have any final aspects or moments or just anything else you want to mention or talk about before we wrap up? I'm excited for volume three, whenever that's going to hit. Yeah, I tried looking, I could not find an already announced publication date. So for now, I will simply assume that we will be talking about volume three just at some point next year. Oh, I did. Um, I did Google the name that original Hikaru says as he's dying, which is presumably the name of the thing that is now Hikaru. You know, unclear if that's definitely who it is. The, uh, Unuki-sama, and I got literally no results aside from one forum post asking what this name meant in relation to this comic. So, it's not something that's pre-existing, or at the very least, this is not the name of something that's pre-existing from some kind of mythology or legend that anyone has bothered to put on the internet. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually wondering... deeply impressed that there's a name that has not wound up on the internet at all. Yeah. Huh, okay. 
when you started, I was like, oh, are you about to tell me that this is a specific mythological reference, religious reference, but apparently not, was, or at least not recorded in English? Because of the uh, the gate, I was like, oh, okay. You know, there's a chance that this is actually, but unless this is just something that's not been, tra- like, it, this could be translation, maybe, as to why this is a name that isn't coming up, but I doubt it. Like, I doubt that the people translating this who clearly put so much effort into lettering this properly would, like, fuck up the translation of an existing name and not just use the existing English version of that name. So, yeah. Okay. Kind of the opposite of what happens when I Google something from a comic while we're actually recording an episode. I'm like, oh, is that a reference to something? But yeah, uh, it's a great series. Uh, go go and read it. Hey, it's um, it's already in Barnes and Noble. Yeah, that'll that'll do us on the summer. Hikaru died for now. I imagine we'll be talking about it more at some point next year. Yes, please. But for now, the question is, with next week being the first week of November. What are you going to be making me read? Well, it is 60 years since the start of my favorite television show. And so we are going to be reading some Doctor Who comics. Specifically, a Doctor Who comic that is actually being adapted into one of the three specials that are going to be airing in November this year. We're reading The Star Beast, and we are finally going to meet Beep the Meep, the podcast new mascot. So, meep meep. Meep beep. See you all next week. Thank you for listening and bye. Bye. Meep meep. Be excellent to each other.